thank you so much for this time and this space. Thank you for family, God. Thank you that we come together and we are, we are bound together by, by your blood and by your work on the cross. Thank you so much for the gift of your gospel, God. We are, we are unworthy recipients and yet you joyfully, joyfully invite us into your family. God, this morning as we, as we discuss your word, as we discuss your person, we ask that you would make your presence known, God. And, and, and as we dig into your word and as we, as we move forward to celebrate the meal you invited us to, God, we ask that the words of our mouths, that the meditations of our heart would be pleasing to you. Jesus, we love you and we trust you. And, and we pray these things to you because we know you're capable of them. So we pray them in your name. Amen. Oh, thank you, Mike. We don't need to do anything else, right? But that's just, that's just it. Like, we're good. See you guys later. No, we, we, do, we're, we are going to do something else. But thank you so much for that, Mike. What a, what a perfect way to, to, to start off our study of this book. We're, we're jumping into Mark today. If you guys don't know, we've, we've been kind of hyping it for, for a couple of weeks. We're, we're going to be spending the next long amount of time in our gathering going through the Gospel of Mark. And I have to tell you guys, I have been eagerly anticipating this time with you guys. Um, I, I, I just, I love, I love studying stories in Scripture. I connect with stories a lot, a lot more readily than I connect with discourse. And so to jump into a narrative that tells us the story of our Savior together is just really exciting for me. So um, you guys, you guys heard, and thank, thank you again, Mike. We, we're going to be focusing in on several different themes throughout our time in Mark, but this first theme that we're going to focus in on is this phrase, the beginning of the gospel, and it comes from Mark 1.1. You'll see it there, but, but the idea is this. Essentially, the gospel is God's eternal plan that, that has no beginning and no and, and yet, experientially, we, we experience a genesis of the gospel in our life. And so we thought a great way to kind of focus ourselves in on that theme as we discussed Mark was, 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 a, it was to have our el- elders share that moment in their story. What was the genesis of the gospel? What was the beginning of the gospel in, in our lives? Because for one, it's, it's just good for you guys to know your pastors a little better, but, but also just what a, what a way to focus us in on the person and work of Jesus than to remember that this story is not a detached historical discussion. This story is about what God is doing in the hearts and lives of those whom he has called. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Mark chapter 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have house Bibles on the end of each row. Feel free to grab one or to nudge someone, and they'll, they'll pass it to you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on a side note, we would, we would love for that to be a gift to you. We'd love for you to snag one of those and take it home. Uh, we, we value the Word of God here, and we want to make sure each of you guys have access to that. So we're in Mark chapter 1, uh, starting in the first verse, and I will, uh, I'll read this to us. This is the first verse of the first chapter of the gospel according to Mark, and it tells us this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And this is the word of the Lord. So before we jump into this story, I am, I am stoked for what God has for us, not only in the Gospel of Mark, but specifically in this introduction. I think this is a perfect introduction for our people right now at Red Tree. But before we talk about that, I want to set some, some groundwork for us in the Gospel of Mark just so we're all on the same page. And, and first and foremost, I, I really, like, I, I say this a lot, but I really mean this. I hope and pray that you guys will dedicate yourselves to studying Mark on your own and as families as we work through this as a church. It, there is simply no way that we can come close to exhausting the truth of the gospel found in this book on 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. They're just, it just isn't going to happen. Each passage we dig into could be a three-month series. And so I really want to encourage you guys, take time in your personal study and as your study with, with your family and dig through Mark. If, you, if you're nervous about that, if you're like, I don't know how to do that. I join Bible studies that other people have written and I let them lead it. Like if that sort of thing is hard for you, please grab one of our elders. We would love to connect you with some resources to help you and your family walk through this book. We could, I'd love to show you some of the commentaries our elders use when we study books like Mark. It is such, such a rich text, and I, I want for our whole body to, to soak in this over the coming months as we, as we walk through the story of our Savior. But having said that, there's a couple things that, that I want to right now, kind of, I want to draw together some of the research and some of the thoughts on Mark in Christian academia so we can kind of be on the same page. I'm going to have to take a couple minutes and be a little teachy, and so I'm sorry if that's super boring, but it, it is important, it is important to get us together on this. So Mark is one of the Gospels. We are blessed and fortunate to have a fourfold witness of the Gospel. We have the first four books of the New Testament are called the Gospels, and each one tells the story of the life of Jesus from a differing perspective. So, so Mark is in your Bible. It's the second of four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But what we actually know is that Mark is the oldest gospel. It's the earliest witness we have of Christ, written somewhere between the late 50s into the 60s. This is, this is a book that was written around 30, 25, 30 years after the events. Imagine if someone right now released a book on the Clinton campaign or something like that. That's, that's the level of history we're talking about, the original audience. That would be their perspective when they, when they got their hands on Mark. By the way, I'm not, not comparing the ministry of Jesus to the Clinton campaign. Just, just want to be really clear on that up front. <laughs> 
But, but just in terms, of, in terms of history's sake, you're talking about 25, 30 years after the fact, Mark, the gospel of Mark comes on the scene as the first written witness to the gospel. Up until this point, there has been plenty of oral tradition and oral witness and even some written collections of Jesus' sayings that would have been passed between the traveling preachers. But Mark is the first attempt to collect the story of Jesus in a way that will communicate to people his life and his ministry without them having to meet an apostle. And, and that's really important because Mark comes into church history at a really key time in the history of the church. If you're talking about the early 60s, this is when persecution really breaks out in the church. And this is when the apostles begin to be martyred en masse. So, so Mark was written uh, by, by a dude named John Mark. We have a lot of church history and church legend to point us to this guy, John Mark, who was, uh, an who was a disciple and a follower of Peter, the apostle. Uh, some people believe it's the same John Mark mentioned in Acts who followed Paul and Barnabas. That's a little more iffy, but it, it, it totally could be. But at the minimum, we know we've got this guy named John Mark who served under the apostle Peter during the end of his life when he was ministering to the church in Rome. So he would have been in the church in Rome in the 50s at the end of Peter's life. Peter was martyred in 64. And so somewhere in that time frame, Mark began collecting Peter's sermons and his teachings and, and putting them together into the gospel of Mark. The earliest writing or commentary we have on Mark comes from like the year 110. One of the early church fathers wrote about Mark and basically was talking about the genre of the Gospels. Because the Gospels are not, not what we would look for in, in the telling of a person's life and story. Three of the four Gospels fit really neatly into this ancient genre called bios. A bios is essentially the great-great-grandfather of a modern biography. But comparing it to a modern biography is really deceptive and will cause us to read the book incorrectly. The writers of bios were not concerned with answering the same sorts of questions that modern biographers answer. A bios is closer to what we would think of as a character study. A bios existed to tell you about the person and message of an important figure. How do I describe to you the character of Jesus and the central message that he brought to the world? As a result of that, authors of bios weren't overly concerned with chronology. They weren't overly concerned with telling the story in an accurate chronological progression. And they weren't overly concerned with the amount of per percentage of time and energy they gave to the different parts of the person's life. The Gospels give about 25% of their words to the last like three or four days Jesus spends on earth. And they give almost no words to any of his life prior to age 30, right? They're, they're not concerned with giving us what we would think of as a modern biography that tells you all the details of a person's life as like a personal history. They're, they're concerned with telling you there was this guy named Jesus and he was really important and this was his message, right? So Mark fits 
really neatly into that genre. And the first commentary that came out on Mark was one of the church fathers essentially defending Mark, saying, listen, 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 we know the story didn't happen in that order, but that's not a reason to not not read and regard Mark. He He was writing under the apostleship of Peter, and Peter would teach the life of Jesus contextually as as issues came up in the church in Rome, he would share different stories and different teachings of Jesus as they fit the, the needs of the church. And so when Mark recorded the gospel from Peter, he didn't have the order to put it in, so, so he chose the order he did, but it's still, it's still really valuable. It's still really good. That's a weird thing for us as modern readers to wrap our heads around. We're, we're used to recording history and discerning truth in a very specific way, right? We want an impartial third-party observer to give us just the facts, man. But that's not how people wrote back then. It just isn't. The, the writers of the Gospels, and by, and by the way, I say three of the four Gospels fit mostly into this bias genre. Luke and Acts are, read much closer to an ancient history than they do a bias, which, by the way, that's even more confusing, connecting an ancient history to a modern history, because, again, we want impartial third-party observers to tell us just the facts, and that's not what history meant in, in the first century. But, but anyway, Mark gives us a really accurate and trustworthy picture of the person of Jesus. And if we were to sit down with John Mark and go, but John Mark, why didn't you tell us the story in order? He would look at you like, what? Why? Why does that matter? And you would go, but, but how can I know it's true if you don't tell me the story? And he'd go, no, 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 no. It's Jesus, and that's his message. That, that's incredibly true, right? Like, there's this, there's this cultural disconnect between the way we as modern Western readers expect a book to communicate history to us versus the intent of these ancient authors. Even though we talk about the Scripture as the inspired and holy and inerrant Word of God, which it is, God used earthly writers and authors to collect his words and his message. And so the thoughts and opinions and genres of an ancient people in an ancient culture are permanently embedded in the eternal revelation of our God. And if that doesn't spin your head around a couple times, I don't know what will. Because I wouldn't have chosen to do it that way. (laughs) But God did. God chose to use a first century disciple of the Apostle Peter named John Mark to write this specific book to preserve the person and message of Jesus for us today, believers who have no access to apostolic witness, and yet we can learn about our Savior because of the faithfulness of men like John Mark to write down the story. So we've got this story. Mark is is the oldest gospel. It's written 25, 30 years after the fact uh, it's, it's the shortest gospel. It it's uses the most simplistic language. In fact, early church fathers called it the simpleton's gospel because it has the, the smallest vocabulary of any of the gospels. It uses, uh, it uses essentially, essentially street Greek, right? It uses low Greek, like common language. It, 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 just isn't, it doesn't appear on a cursory reading to be written terribly intelligently the way, say, Matthew or Luke is written. Uh, Mark, you'll find, tells the story very quickly, right? 
Every, every story is simplified. It's, it's down to just the key points, and you move from scene to scene to scene to scene really quickly. The genius of Mark doesn't, doesn't come from the way he chose to write, but the way he chose to edit. And that's, it's weird to say it that way, but, but Mark composed the story really simplistically, but ordered it very in, in, intensely and very specifically. There's, there's a thing scholars call Markin sandwiches. Any, any, any good commentary you find on Mark will talk about this. So the, one of the things that makes Mark unique amongst the Gospels is that Mark was written to be read aloud. So most of the time when we think of a book, we think of a text that you can sit down and study. But Mark was written to be distributed to the churches and read aloud as groups sat and listened to it. And so to think of Mark the way you think of a modern book is actually a misreading of it. It's, it's much more accurate to think of Mark as early audio drama right? You would sit with your church and the entire story beginning to end would be read to you and you would sit and listen to it with no visual reference. And so because of that, Mark tells the story simplistically. Each story is shorter. It's more streamlined. He tells the story quickly where each scene bleeds into the next scene and he orders the scenes very specifically. You'll find Mark mixing stories together in ways they aren't mixed together in the other Gospels. He'll start a story, pause it, tell you another story, and then unpause and finish the first story. He does that because he knows you're going to be listening to the story, and he wants you to interpret each story through the lens of the ones you've just heard. He wants you to kind of blur the lines between each story as you listen to it, where you begin to interpret, oh, Jesus said this because he just did that. That makes sense. You see, we're so used, we have the benefit of thousands of years of systematic study and systematic theology. We're so used to when we read the Gospels especially, we go into cross-reference mode, right? And we have our fat, like, Schofield study Bible, and we're like, oh, this story is also found in Luke 14. And so we flip over there and read the same story. We're like, oh, sweet, Luke gave me way more detail. That's awesome. And then you, like, flip back and keep going. I want to encourage you guys to not do that. That's a great thing. Systematic study is a beautiful thing. But I want to really encourage you as we go through Mark together, let Mark just be Mark. Because Mark was written first. And so when Mark passed out Mark, there was no cross-referencing. We have the benefit of that 2,000 years later. But, but Mark wrote with the understanding that, that Gentile believers who had no access to the apostolic witness would hear this story in audio form from beginning to end, and that would be their picture of their Savior. And there's something to experiencing that that I think will be powerful for us. So I want to encourage you as we study this, resist the urge. Like maybe like later on in the week, go go back and like do your cross-references, but like in the moment, I want you to resist the urge and let Mark be Mark. Because the genius of Mark comes in that kind of squishy interpretive where we begin to blend the lines between the stories and we begin to see them through the lens of each other. That's where the brilliance of Mark comes out. That he constructed this story in such a way that, that it will, if you allow it to, it will move you. 
It, it will not be s- simply detached history about a person who's important to us. This story, Mark, is written in such a way, and I would say differently than specifically Matthew or Luke. Mark is written in such a way that it, it sucks you in, and it forces you to feel some things about what it means to be in the kingdom and, and to be a part of the church that we will miss if we overanalyze these stories. I really want us to experience these stories as much as we can. There's a couple themes in Mark that are really important to us. The first one we've already mentioned is this idea of movement. Mark is constantly moving. You guys are going to become well acquainted with John Mark's favorite word in Greek, which is immediately. He says immediately, constantly. He says immediately in in contexts where it literally makes no sense. Where you're like, Mark, I don't think that happened immediately. And he's like, shut up, immediately. That's, that's how Mark goes. He loves this word. The story is, is fast-paced. It just moves bang, 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 bang through story to story and scene to scene. And there's something about that because that allows Mark, in the second theme, the one that I think is going to be most important for us, that allows Mark to build tons of tension. Mark is an incredibly tense telling of the gospel story. Mark tells Jesus, he he tells the same sorts of stories over and over. So you'll notice in the first like three or four chapters, he's going to set a couple places for us, a couple settings, and then he'll come back to those settings over and over throughout the gospel. But each time he comes back to the same setting, it's always way more tense than it was the time before. So like one of the important scenes or one of the important settings is, is Peter's mom's house. Jesus goes back there a lot in Mark, and every time he goes back there, it gets a little more intense and a little more intense and a little more intense. This is how Mark writes. He, he writes in such a way that if you, if you allow yourself, like if you sit down with a good, well-done audio Bible of Mark and you just listen to it, it's, it's pretty short. It would take like maybe an hour, but by the end, you will find yourself physically tensing up at parts of the story. You will find yourself holding your breath because Mark is brilliant at building the tension of the story. Jesus's ministry is intense in Mark. Jesus is also incredibly mysterious in Mark. Unlike John, where like by chapter two, people are like, oh my gosh, you're the savior. You're the son of God. I believe in you. In Mark, literally till the end, people are like, wait, what? I'm sorry, you're who? No, that doesn't make sense. Literally, they never get it. If you read Mark in its original form, Mark has an extra little bit of ending that was added on a while later because the church really didn't like how tense the ending of Mark was. Mark ends in chapter 16 at the worst possible way. Jesus is like, I'm resurrected. Go meet me in Galilee. It's going to be crazy. Let's do this. And the, the, the women who are there go, <laughs> and they freak out and leave. And that's the end. That's how Mark ends originally with, with Jesus' followers going, I don't get this. I don't have a category for this. I'll see you later. And they run away terrified. Mark tells a story of a Jesus that no one gets. The only people that get Jesus and Mark are demons. Literally. The entire story, whenever Jesus meets a demon, they go, ah, you're the son of God. And whenever he meets his disciples, they go, who the heck are you? The whole time. Jesus is incredibly mysterious. He's he's fast moving. It's tense. No one gets him. And and Mark 
always and, and more so than the other Gospels is going to point us to the fact that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah. Mark quotes the Old Testament the least of any of the Gospels because it's being written to people who were illiterate of the Jewish culture and the Jewish scriptures. But more than the other Gospels, Mark is going to lean into this Isaiah idea of the suffering servant, that Jesus must experience pain and ridicule and misunderstanding in order for the Gospel to work out. And then finally, the last thing we're going to talk about is this first theme we're focusing in on, this idea of the beginning of the gospel. It comes from verse 1-1, as we already talked about. I'll read it again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, The reason, this is a really interesting phrase because there's a lot of good scholarly reasons to actually believe that verse 1-1 was originally the title of Mark. The gospel, according to Mark, was added in the second century to to help differentiate between the fourfold witness. And then there's a lot of good reasons to think Mark specifically was originally titled the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a weird title, right? Because you kind of look at it and you go, but it's the gospel. It tells the whole story. But there's some really cool intentionality there. Think about, have you guys ever studied Jonah? Jonah's a really short book. The best thing about Jonah is it has the worst ending possible, right? If you guys remember Jonah, Jonah literally ends with God blessing these people and Jonah being like, why'd you do that? And God's like, because I wanted to. The end right? That's, it's, this really, it's this really abrupt and strange ending to a book. Mark does something really similar. You see, when, when, when Jonah ends really abruptly with Jonah going, God, why'd you have mercy on those people I don't like? And, and it literally ends with a question of God going, can I be merciful if I want to? The end. By ending on that, that stark question, Jonah draws you as the reader in and goes, oh, shoot, can't God have mercy on people he wants to? Even people I don't like? It draws you into the story, right? Mark is this insanely fast-paced telling of the gospel that ends really abruptly. And by the way, we'll, we'll, we'll read the whole ending that's in your Bible, but it is important to note that it was originally, originally ended before the ending in your Bible. It's really weird, but it's true. But Mark's original ending is so abrupt and and so intense of Jesus being like, this is it. It's actually an angel, but he's resurrected. Go and meet him in Galilee. It's crazy. Go tell the other apostles. Resurrection's real. The gospel is true. Jesus is the Messiah. And they hear that and go, I don't know what to do with that. And they leave and run away and don't tell anyone. (laughs) Now, obviously, the implication is they told someone at some point or you wouldn't be reading Mark. <laughs> but by ending the story so abruptly, Mark draws in the listener. Can you imagine sitting and listening to this story and over the course of an hour or two, you hear Jesus constantly saying things like, son of man must come to suffer. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And the people respond by going, Hey, can I, can, I be your, can I be your number two leader in the kingdom and like beat people up? You listen to that and you're like, no, you idiot. That's, did you hear what he said? Like it, it, it builds up this tension in you as, you as you hear the apostles just miss it over and over. And you're listening going, come on. It's, it's, it's the equivalent of watching the horror movie and being like, don't go in that room. 
don't go in there by yourself. What are you doing? That's, that's the same thing that happens as you allow yourself to listen to Mark and you realize, these guys are idiots. How the heck are they missing what Jesus is doing? And then it gets to the end and just ends and you're sitting there going, my goodness, Jesus' followers were terrible at following him. And then you kind of sit there and go, I'm one of Jesus' followers. I'm really terrible at following him. It, it draws you into the story. By, by, by thinking of Mark as the beginning of the gospel, we're forced to remember that the gospel story is not yet over. That you as the church today are participating in the exact same work that God has been doing from eternity past. My goodness, how encouraging is that? How encouraging is it to know that this is just the beginning? That, what, that if this is how great the beginning is, can you imagine how amazing the ending is? So, let's jump into our text. What's the actual story here? It begins... This is the beginning of the gospel. It gives us a prophecy. Mark calls this prophecy from Isaiah, but I don't know if you guys noticed this when Mary read Isaiah 40 for us. Thank you, Mary. Uh, That wasn't exactly a quote, right? (laughs) Uh, Mark is actually pulling together three different texts here. He pulls together a a bit of text from Exodus 23 and a bit of text from Malachi. I can't remember the chapter. And there you go. And did you cross-reference it? (laughs) It was right here, man. He, he pulls together a bit of text from Exodus and from Malachi and from Isaiah. And he, he tells us it's from Isaiah because the main thrust of it is from Isaiah. And to be honest, he's hoping that you'll go back and read Isaiah 40 because Isaiah 40, 1 through 5 is a declaration of the gospel that God is doing something, right? But, but he gives us this, this amalgamation of, of essentially the entire Old Testament, right? We get a word from the Torah, a word from the prophets, and a word from the minor prophets all pointing us to God doing something. And then immediately, John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and he's, he's preaching the people in the wilderness, a, re- a baptism of repentance of sins. And it tells us that people are coming from all over Judea and coming from Jerusalem out to hear this guy wearing camel hair and eating bugs talk about repentance from sins, and they're getting baptized. And then it tells us John's message, which is essentially, listen, this is just the beginning. God is doing something new. And the thing that God is doing, he's sending someone. And that person is going to be so great. You think I'm cool up here with my camel hair and bugs like this guy? I won't even be worthy to stoop down and untie his shoes. He is that much greater. Guys, God is doing something new. And that's the story, right? And, and if you've been in church for more than 15 minutes, you know a lot about John the Baptist already. He's a pretty important part of the story. Mark gives us essentially the shortest treatment of John the Baptist. He leaves out large parts of his ministry, and there's purpose in that. I, I really, like, I, I want us to experience the book the way Mark chose to put it together. And he chose to put it together by summarizing John's entire ministry as people were coming out to see him in the wilderness and they were being baptized, and they were confessing their sins, and his main message was that someone better was coming. That's, 
That's an interesting way to encapsulate John. And, and I think there's something really cool for us there. And, and to experience it, here's what I want us to do. I want us to put ourselves in this story for a moment in two different ways. I want us to first put ourselves in the place of the people that John is actually preaching to. I want to put us in Mark for a moment. I want us to imagine that. And then we're going to take a step back, and I want us to imagine ourselves as the original audience hearing Mark, hearing this story. And I think that'll bring us forward to us sitting in this room today. And that'll end us out on something that I think is really good. So, right now you're going to have to use your imagination. Right? So imagine yourself as a first century Jew living in Palestine. You, you're, you're in the wilderness hearing this guy preach, right? I want to I put a couple things, I want to help put this picture together for you. You are one of the most special human beings ever created because you worship this God who is the one true God who, who made everything, who controls everything, and for whatever reason, he chose you to be his people. He, he, from the beginning of time, has been working this plan and making these promises and, and drawing your ancestors to the right place at the right time and blessing you and giving blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And, and you have this scripture that teaches you all about this God and how, how powerful he is and how loving he is and how majestic he is. And yet he chose you. You are the people of God. Of all the human beings on earth, you are his chosen people. And yet, you're conquered. Somehow, even though you, you've read the text and you believe in this God, it's hard to say with, with actual conviction that he is who he says he is because you have this Caesar who tells you, I am God. And, and every time you, you flex your muscles in the slightest bit, he destroys you. And, and your people, even though you've read the stories that, that God supernaturally freed your people from slavery and he made a way for them to, to become people again and to have identity and to have a land, even though you've read that, you live in a land that's conquered and has been conquered for generations countless. You, you are under the yoke of an oppressive ruler who taxes you around 90%. You are literally starving to death. You are working your fingers to the bone, maintaining your land and growing fruit and taking care of livestock. And almost all of it is taken away by a foreign ruler who worships a false god. But you're the chosen people of God. How does that work? How does that work? How can you... How can you watch your children wither because the food you grew to give them has been taken away by a soldier and go, man, I am the chosen of God. I am his people. Well, I'll tell you what, your religious leaders have a great answer for you. They told you that God is doing this to you because of your sin. They, they pointed to prophets like Jeremiah and they said, see, because of your sin and your unbelief, God is allowing this to happen to you. 
He is, he is angry at you, and this is his wrath. So you want this to stop? You need to live more righteously. You want God to send an anointed one like he did in Exodus, like he did in Judges, and free us? Well, then you should start obeying the law. You should, you should not only obey the law, but you should, you should obey it more fully. You should add extra laws to it. You should live so righteously that God has no choice but to remove his wrath from you and free you. That's what you should do. That's what your, your pastors and your spiritual leaders are telling you. So you try your best while, by the way, working your fingers to the bone under an oppressive political system that takes more from you that allows you to actually survive. So you're going deep into debt, borrowing and selling off your property just to get food to feed your children. But yeah, you should also be righteous and you should also honor the Sabbath and you should also keep the feasts and you should also make the sacrifices. Absolutely, that's totally doable. So yeah, that's your life. And in the midst of that, this guy shows up in the wilderness as a pastor out in the desert wearing crazy clothes and eating bugs and saying, listen, God is doing something new. <laughs> now, let's be honest for a minute. That guy's crazy. But at the same time, things are pretty terrible. So let's check it out, right? So you go to hear this guy, and he says, here's the first thing you need to do. Repent of all your sins, and I will dip you in this muddy river. And you're like, yeah, sure, why not? I mean, literally, what else am I going to do? Go home and starve? Yeah, sure. I'll confess my sins. I know I'm terrible. The pastors have been telling me that as long as I've been alive. Yeah, let's do this. But there's something really interesting about John's ministry, by the way. He, he tells them to confess their sins and repent and then be baptized. You don't notice him telling them, now go back and follow all those rigorous laws perfectly to the T. He just says, no, 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 just confess. Be baptized, repent. Let, let God know that you know. Acknowledge to God who you are and, and where you're coming from. Let's, let's just start there. He doesn't put an oppressive burden on them. He actually, he actually invites them to freely confess, right? So they do that. They confess. And this message, this message lights a fire in your people. People are coming from all over the country. People are leaving Jerusalem, the religious center where the pastors tell you how to do the sacrifices and keep the feasts. They're coming from there and they're coming out to hear this crazy guy with bugs in his teeth tell them to confess their sins and repent. Do you get why that story is compelling to you in the moment? Nothing you've been given in your life works. You, you've had pastors and rabbis tell you you are God's chosen people, and yet all you've experienced is pain and oppression and suffering. And their answer to that is, well, you just need to be more righteous. And you're like, I'm trying. I'm trying. And they're like, well, that's not good enough. God's going to keep pouring out his wrath as long as you just keep trying. That's a terrible message. So a guy comes along and says, Listen, God is doing something new. That's a hopeful message. That's a compelling message. 
If all you've ever heard is that God is pouring out his wrath because you're not good enough, and someone comes along and says, that's not actually right. God is doing something new. Well, yeah. I'm down for that. I don't know what it is. I don't know, like, do I need to eat bugs too? Like, yeah, I'll get in the muddy room. Yes. I'm down for that. Of course you would be. Because these people are longing for God to do something new. Read, read through the last 20 chapters of Isaiah. This perfectly encapsulates the hearts of God's people at this time. They are desperate. They are longing. They are anticipating. God, please, please do something new. Our sins are paid for. They're paid for double. Please comfort us. Please come to us. Please smooth this out. Please make this place better because this life is unbearable. This is the longing of God's people in this moment. This this calls back to the slaves in Egypt groaning under the burden of their dehumanizing slavery saying, God, please do something new. And then God does. So when John shows up and says, the new thing is almost here, of course the people are ready for that. God has been silent for generations with oppression building on oppression and now a prophet comes and he says, the time is now. Get ready. That, that speaks into this bone-deep longing for, for God to show himself powerful. If he is who this text claims that he is, he needs to show himself because my life is terrible and John says he's about to. Man, that is compelling. So step out of that story for a minute and let's, let's put ourselves in, in the place of the hearers of this. You're in the church in Rome in the first century, in the 60s. And someone comes in to read this text to you. I, I want to I paint the picture for you. you, you this is 30 years later, and, and now, rather than living in, in a podunk, conquered country, you're living in the capital of the evil empire, <laughs> just so you know. Like, if this is Star Wars, you are the stormtrooper at this point. But <laughs> that's beside the point. You, you, you're living in the, in the heart of the empire, and you hear this message. You already know this whole story. You hear this message of this, this man named Jesus who, who lived a perfect life and died, and then he rose from the dead, and that resurrection is a promise that God is doing something new, and you are invited into it. And if you receive this gift from this one true God, then, then he will put his spirit, his actual person, to dwell in you, and you will find life and fulfillment and completement, and you will get to join with that resurrected Christ in eternal life through resurrection. You've heard that message. And it, and it struck your heart in a way that you needed and you accepted that message and you found this life. 
This, this spirit of God entered into you and, and you heard from men who've traveled from the distant corners of the world to tell you, this is true. There's something new happening. A new creation is being ushered in. God is making things right and you can be a part of it. And you said, yes, I want that. I want to be a part of it. And that God actually entered into you and you actually found life through his spirit working through you in, in miraculous ways and actually changing your person from the inside out. And in the midst of that, you found this new family of people who are all experiencing the same thing. And you, you begin to gather together in the joy of this spirit. And you share in this meal that, that this God has invited you to take where you come together and you remind ourselves by his sacrifice, we're given life. And all of a sudden, you have this new community that you've never experienced before. These, these close friends who, who you've never met and yet somehow they're more deeply tied to you than blood. And you spend your lives together and you confess together and you share your families and you share your resources and you really become one. And you find this joy and this abundance and this peace and this completeness that you've never experienced before in your life. And the pastor keeps telling you, this is just the beginning. This is just the appetizer. It's going to get amazing. And then it doesn't. Then then all of a sudden, you notice people treating you differently in public. All of a sudden, you notice that, that shopkeepers kind of give you a dirty look when you step into their store. And then, and then a few months later, you start finding out you're not allowed to go in those stores anymore. And then, then you hear about the first break-in that some people broke into one of your friend's houses and beat them and robbed them and the police did nothing. And then what starts out as a really crazy story becomes commonplace. Everyone is getting broken into. And then some soldiers actually show up at your gathering and they bust into the room while you're taking communion and they accuse you of like eating people and they drag you out into the street and beat you. And then you're no longer allowed to gather. Now, now you're gathering at night instead of on Sunday. You're gathering in the graveyard instead of in homes and in buildings. And you notice that family, those friends that seem closer than blood, they start, they start going away. Some of them just say, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And when you see them in public, they're just like, no, I don't know you. But some of them, some of them start getting arrested. And then the next thing you know, the emperor has actually come out and said, you are public enemy number one. And now they're taking your pastors and they're murdering them in the streets for people to see. This apostle who traveled across the world to, to tell you about this new life and this peace that can be found in Jesus, he gets drug out of his home at night and crucified upside down in the city square. And now you're sitting at church at night in a graveyard. Most of your friends who were there when you found this place are gone. They've either abandoned you or they're dead. And a guy walks in and says, I've got to read you guys this book about Jesus. That's, 
That's some context. And he starts off and he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was, was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That introduction has a little more, a little more weight to it in that moment. Because you, you, you've been going to the synagogue a little bit maybe, right? Because you can still go there. And so maybe you know a little bit of Isaiah and maybe you can actually catch that reference. Maybe you actually, you actually hear that and you go, oh, yes, comfort. Comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to them. The, the warfare is ended. Your, your iniquity is pardoned. This voice cries in the wilderness and prepares a way of the Lord. Make straight paths, for the glory of God shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. That has, that has a little different meaning for you in that moment. And, and when you hear of this John saying, remember, God is doing something new. And this something new will involve a spirit that is on you, that you are submerged in, that you, that dwells with you. And in that moment, that story will be compelling. Can, can, you, can you imagine that? Can you, can you put yourself in that place and feel how compelling the story would be. You're at this fragile place where you're, you're thinking back on how things used to be so great and I thought this was the best thing and now you're sitting looking at what it's become and you're asking yourself, is this actually worth it? And this guy comes up and says, God is doing something new. And he will baptize you with his spirit. And you, and you can think about those Jewish people un, under their oppression hearing that message and all of a sudden you realize, that's me. I long for things to be the way they were. Just, just as those Jews were longing for, for God to show up again and to make things right again, I'm longing for that. I, I'm, I'm not sure if I can keep doing this. You, you're telling me that, that God is actually up to something new? I need that. I need that right now. I need something new from him. Because I don't, I don't know if I can keep up this pace. I, I want things to be as they were. I want things to be restored. 
and made right. Beloved, if the story is not compelling to you, I mean, surely you don't need me to draw the comparison for you to our church in this room right now. We all, we all long for God to make things new. We have all, like, we, we, we don't even come close to the experience of the persecuted church in the modern Western church. We just don't. We just don't. Spend five minutes reading about Syrian Christians right now, or Chinese Christians right now, or North Korean Christians right now. We just don't. We don't come close to that. And yet, every single one of us has been burdened and wounded by a cursed and broken world. Every single one of us has something deep in our bones that longs for the God of the Scriptures to show Himself. That for those things we read about to actually be true. For this God to appear in power and to break the curse of this world and to make things new. Every single one of us, if we are honest, that dwells in our soul. And as, as you think about your own story of the gospel, when you think about the genesis of the gospel in your life, when God sought you and met you and found you and called you and saved you, you will find that longing in that story. I guarantee it. You will find a piece of your soul saying, things are not right, but this God says he can make things right. I want that. I want that. Beloved, that does not end at the moment of conversion. We are still in a broken and hurt world. We are still bogged by sin and curse. It still follows after us. The, the old man, our flesh, chases after us constantly, calling us to return to death as a dog returns to vomit. We all experience that. And we have moments where we look around us and we look at what this gospel has wrought in our life and we go, man, was this actually worth it? Is this what I thought I was getting into when I signed up for this? Is this really what God is doing? Beloved, the answer to that is yes. This is what God is doing. The story is not over. It's just the beginning. God is making all things new. If your heart, if your soul longs for that, if you, if you can be honest about the cry of your heart that wishes, just wishes this world was not cursed, I have good news for you. God is making all things new. The gospel is real and the gospel is power. God is making all things new. If your heart longs for that, take joy, beloved, because, because God will meet that cry of your heart. 
He will fulfill that longing. This, this world seems to be so dark, and it seems as though the curse has won. It seems as though death reigns, but Jesus tells us that is not the case. Jesus has proclaimed death defeated, that the old order has gone away and there is something new, and beloved, you have been invited to partake in that. 